And thank you to, to pastors Rick and Corey and Mark. They, uh, they've been incredibly gracious in their assistance and kind in their direction. And the, the welcome and the worship in the first service was, uh, you just made my wife Tammy, who's sitting over there, uh, made, made our, our, just made us feel at home, which I appreciate. Although I got to say, it's probably an exceptional personality that when I was standing in the back after service would come up to a guest and say, that really stunk. Uh, <laughs> Although one time, okay, so uh, in seminary, a friend of ours was asked to preach at chapel, and um, which when you're in seminary, you're very excited about, and, and he did all the things that they try to teach you not to do in seminary, and, and so all of us are sitting back there, it wasn't really very good, and, but what do you say? He comes up afterwards all excited and says, how was it? How was it? A friend of mine, God bless, he, he, the Holy Spirit inspired him, he said, man, good doesn't even begin to describe it. Thanks, man, that's great. So if you ever need that, you now have that. I'll be in the back after service. Uh, but th thank you to, to Pastor Clanton for, for inviting me. It's, uh, he's been a friend for 15 years. Uh, just really love and appreciate his, his heart, his wisdom. He, uh, I, I think he likes me because my wife is from the South, and so he, uh, uh, we became friends because of that. So I, I, I appreciate his, his trust. He loves you guys a lot, and it's a real honor to be able to, to preach in his absence. So... Oh, and I'm Casey Arnouts. I pastor at Grace Assembly of God in Fruitport, Michigan, which is over by Muskegon, Grand Haven. Uh, I also teach Old Testament at North Point Bible College in Grand Rapids, which is, a, I have a lot of fun. My students groan quite a bit, but, but I enjoy it. And so, uh, yeah, I can say this too. You can find our church website at gag.church. I just like to tell people that we own that website. That's not the one we advertise, but we're friends here, so you'll never forget it. If you have your Bibles, open to uh, the book of Psalm. Psalm 42 is where, where we will uh, look this morning. And, and while you're opening the Scriptures, uh, do me a favor and, and think of your favorite preacher, uh, the person that you love to listen to. And now, thanks to technology and podcasting and, and, and all the resources that are available, you can find awesome preachers. There's just so many, so many brilliant and blessed men who, who do such a good job of, of bringing Scripture. And, and, and think of that person that th theirs is the perspective you really appreciate, the one that helps bring insight to, to God and the world and your life, the, the person whose voice is the one that you would just love to hear at the other end of the phone when, when, you, when you face a struggle because you want to understand their perspective on your circumstance to help give you direction. Do you have the person pictured? I mean, someone, a name, a face, or at least a voice. Because we all have somebody who is the go-to. The, they are the, the background track in our brain when, we're, when we go through life and, and face challenges or even have opportunities. So if you have them pictured, I can tell you in fact, who your favorite preacher is. It may not be the person that you're thinking of, because for every one of us, your favorite preacher is you. You are the person that you listen to the most. You are the one whose voice is always ringing in the back of your head, interpreting your circumstances, bringing, bringing meaning and context to your situation, and, 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 and actually commentary to your emotion. You are the... Well, if your favorite preacher is the one that you just can't get away from, your voice is the one that is always with you. Outside voices are important. Ever had a complaining, bitter person at work or family member at Thanksgiving and you just 
can't wait to escape, or you know, the, the, the teenager where life is unfair and everyone's against them, and so they go to their room and listen to really loud, fast, angry music to try to feel better. It doesn't quite work that way. Outside voices play a role. When, when I pastored, my wife and I uh, ministered up in Baldwin, Michigan for six years, and there was a woman who uh, had been horribly abused as in, in her youth, and, and she had come up north uh, looking for some relief and looking for some counseling, and, and, and she had some physical disabilities and really some, some challenges, and so she calls me one day and, and she said, Pastor, I'm just, I'm afraid. I can't leave my apartment. I'm too afraid to go out. And, and, and it just seems like the whole world is out to get me. And, and, and she was looking for some spiritual insight, some deep, some deep spiritual struggle that she could somehow engage in that might bring her some relief. And so I said, well, all right, you're not leaving the house. What's your day like? And well, this is when I get up. This is what I eat. She spent her time watching Lifetime Channel daytime movies. Have you guys ever watched anything on the Lifetime channel? Let me give you the plot of every Lifetime movie that's ever been produced. There's this woman that just can't find a nice guy. And then a nice guy comes along, and she falls for him. And then she finds out that he cooks meth and organizes cockfights and murders nuns in his spare time or something, and he's some horrible, abusive person. So this woman, who has an entire past of abuse, is spending her days watching movies about people that someone thinks they can trust who turn into abusers. Turn off the TV. You don't need that voice becoming the source material for what you're going to tell yourself all day. And she, mercifully, she did, and it wasn't but a week or so later, she said, wow, things are so much better. Well, yeah, because the voices around you actually do have an influence and do have an impact. And if that's true for the voices that, that surround us, how much more so for the voice inside your own head, for the preaching that you do to yourself? You are your, you are your favorite preacher, whether you like the preaching or not. And if that's the case, you better preach good sermons. You, you want what you tell yourself to be solid and true. And so if you look at your your life, if you look at the circumstances around you and you just, I'm not saying you don't believe in God. I'm not saying you don't love God. It just seems meh, sort of hopeless. Let me challenge from Scripture this morning. Preach better sermons to yourself. We want to see how. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a he was a preacher at, at a Westminster Chapel in London, England for, for years. He's an outstanding preacher. If you can ever get a book of his sermons or, or have opportunity to read anything that he's written, I've always done so with great spiritual profit. Let me, let me, the quote is in your bulletin, but let me read this quote from Lloyd-Jones. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Those, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he started talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this talking to yourself. I'll call it preaching to yourself. But it is, it is that inner dialogue that you have where every once in a while you have to 
remind yourself what's true. We see this dynamic in in the book of Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, but we'll be looking at the first of those this morning. Psalm 42, if you've opened your Bibles, we'll we'll read the uh, the whole psalm. It's only 11 verses. Psalm 42, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All the breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night this, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This psalm, we're, we're unsure of when this psalm was exactly written. The best scholarly estimate is that, that um, King David wrote this psalm or at least began it, when, uh, when his son Absalom was, had deposed him and was pursuing him. What we do know is that this psalm definitely found new voice and final shape in the mouths and the hearts of the Hebrews that were exiled hundreds of years after David, when the, the kingdom of Judah was ultimately destroyed by Babylon. In 586-587, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar came down and were going to put an end to the kingdom of Judah. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem and for two years they laid siege. I, I don't pretend that I can understand warfare in general and I know that I can't understand ancient warfare and the sieges that they would engage in. What, a, what an army would do is they would surround a city, they would do their best to cut off food and supplies and the city that was trapped without running water, without modern sanitation, suddenly starvation and disease would begin to do its work. People would literally starve to death. You can read in in the prophets how the prediction of the siege of Jerusalem, how women would even sell their placenta simply as a source of protein. The need for food had grown so grim. And so for two years, the people of God in the city of God with the temple of God were surrounded by a foreign army that served pagan idols whose, whose might was unassailable. No relief came. No rescue arrived. And for two years, they watched their bellies distend and their loved ones sicken and die. And the city around them began to disintegrate into chaos and despair until they were so weak that the Babylonian army launched an assault. They breached the walls. They tore down the gates. They destroyed the temple and carried away all the sacred implements of worship from the temple as prizes of war to Babylon. Imagine what your emotional state would be like if everything you loved had been destroyed, 
if the home that you had grown up in and was actually the inheritance promised to your forefathers by God himself through Abraham, now it is a, now it is a trophy of foreign oppressors. Your children are dead or about to be disposed. Your grandkids are not going to be they're not going to receive the inheritance you've sought to store up for them. Everything's gone. Everything's changed. And adding insult to injury, they were about to start, um, a large number of these Hebrews were about to start a forced exile where they would, be, they would be taken, if you want to switch that, they would be taken from Jerusalem there on the left almost a thousand miles to Babylon. They would, they would be forcibly resettled into a community to add to the greater glory and, and might of the, of the Babylonian empire. They were taken literally at spear point and ripped from their homes and ripped from their families. They didn't take everybody. You had to be productive. You had to have some skill that they valued. They didn't care about family connections. They didn't care about your story, your life, your, your situation. Some, some were taken, some were left. And this whole group of exiles is forcibly removed. And they're going to die in Babylon. And their kids are going to live, and they're going to speak Chaldean, and they're going to be exposed to a completely foreign culture, and they're going to see the temples to all the pagan gods, and their grandkids are going to grow up, and they will never have even seen Jerusalem or the temple. And this is where they're going. This is, this is their plight. This is where they're heading. The people of God, humiliated, humbled, destroyed in war, and now humiliated and shamed in exile. And as the as the exiles were being marched from Jerusalem on their way to Babylon, they stopped by this beautiful little spot in the Galilee called the Benias Falls. It's lovely. When I, when I visited Israel, it was one of, my, one of the most beautiful places. And, and it's on the, the trade route, the ancient trade route that led from, from the coast to Damascus and ultimately to Babylon. And so, so this, these thousands of people would stop where they would, where they would uh, refill their water supply on the long and arduous march to Babylon. And, and this psalm suddenly found fresh voice in the, in the despairing hearts, in the, parched, in the parched throats of these captives who have, who have been prodded and poked by foreign soldiers onto an uncertain and shame-filled future. And, and you can see the Hebrews sitting by the, the, this pool of water, watching the water come down over the fall. And one of them just says, as the deer pants for streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts, with songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You ever seen a deer being chased? It just bounds and bounds, and it's amazing how far they can run. And so you put in mind a picture of this deer that's being pursued through the arid hills of, of Israel, and all he wants is to dip his muzzle in a cool stream and drink. That's how badly this Hebrew wants to feel God. He's got nothing but two years of bad memories and uncertain future mocking soldiers and shattered dreams. And he goes, man, as a deer pants for water, that's how bad I need you, God. My soul thirsts for you. It longs for you. His tears have been his food day and night. And he's wondering where God is. Let's be frank. 
In situations like that, we do wonder. And adding insult to injury, these foreign soldiers who knew the history of Israel, who knew that their enemy thought themselves to be the people of the one true God, Jerusalem, the city of Zion, the city of God, the temple, the footstool of the maker of heaven and earth. Where's your God now? Didn't show up on the battlefield. Didn't keep you from being dragged away. Where's your God? The psalmist is wondering himself. God, I remember, I I used to lead the procession to the temple. I can go back in my mind and I can remember those services where we would sing the Psalms of Ascent and we would march up the hills to Jerusalem and we would offer praise and and, and and the band would play and the priests would lead and the incense would flow and the sacrifices were offered. Lord, I was there. And that memory, it doesn't really bring any comfort now. It's almost salt in the wound, remembering better times and more hopeful situations. Ever feel like that? Where circumstances, either your own decisions or or situations outside of your control, suddenly there's pain, there's uncertainty, there's disappointment. And you can go back in your mind and remember when you had hopes and dreams for, for, for marriage or health or retirement or family or career or whatever it may be. And even to think about that almost just, it turns to ash because of what's happening around you. When your plans wreck and the hardships seem unending and and you wonder where God is, as a deer pants for water, God, that's how badly I need to feel you right now. My tears have been my food day and night. People mock and I wonder, where is my God? This is... This is letting yourself talk to you. This is letting the circumstances, the feelings, the emotions, the situations roll over you and drive you. But listen to what the psalmist does. He does exactly what Lloyd-Jones says we, do, we should do. He preaches to himself. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is talking to yourself. This is preaching to yourself. This is grabbing hold of fear and doubt and the recriminations of your own past in your mind and grabbing them by the scruff and shaking them and saying, you are not the biggest thing in the universe. Because as Christians, what is most true? Your feelings or God? Your interpretation of circumstances or the promises that God has made? Your fear or his purpose? As Christians, we, we know that there is a God who created all things, who brings salvation to his people, and has made promises that we can found and secure our lives on. And those have to be bigger than our circumstances. Otherwise, he is not who we believe him to be. And the psalmist here preaches to himself and says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Put your hope in God. My, my wife and I have, uh, have two teenage daughters. They are down in Arkansas um, reacquainting themselves with catfish, cornbread, and the proper use of y'all because that's important in my extended family. So they're, they're with my in-laws, but my, my oldest daughter, uh, Katie, she's 17 now, when she was a, a toddler, she 
cut herself. She scraped her finger, cut herself, and, and she's bleeding a little bit. And, and she looks at this and starts to melt down. She starts, she sees, you know, she's bleeding her own blood and she's, and she starts that hyperventilating that, that toddlers do when they get really overworked about something. And so I go over and I look and it's not that bad. I know it's not that bad. She doesn't know it's not that bad. And so while I'm trying to help her, she's continuing her meltdown. And finally, I take her face in my hands and I, I, I force her to look at me, Katie, Katie, it's okay. It'll be okay. And she just, she got brave and settled down and we took care of what was wrong. Now, I knew she was going to be okay, but she didn't. The voices in her head, the preaching that she told herself, I'm bleeding, it hurts, this is awful, it's the end of the world, it's what she's focused on, it's what she's fixated on. I don't mean to compare any of the things that we can face in life as, as something as, as, as small as a, as a cut finger. But when we focus on that and fixate on that, when we remember our, our, our past with its regrets, when we look at our, our circumstances with its pain, when we look at our future with its uncertainty, and, and all the emotions that go along with those things, it is easy for us to fixate, to focus, and to become so absorbed with the fear and the pain that we forget there is a God in heaven who speaks and makes promises. And every once in a while, we need to stop and preach to ourselves why are you cast down, O my soul? Put your hope in God. If you're not careful, your circumstances and situations become the source material for the sermon that you preach yourself. Your feelings or the reactions of the people around you become the things that you study before you put together the sermon that will be on repeat in your head when you go to bed, when you wake up. And what the psalmist does, what Lloyd-Jones admonishes, and what I'm recommending is that you stop and preach to yourself what is true. Because we have to get our eyes off of what's right in front of us and onto the one who saved us. The one who stands above, beyond, and even in our circumstances. Outside voices can play a role, but like Katie with her cut, until you preach truth, to yourself, no amount of external speaking is going to make a difference because you're going to hear what runs in your own head. You're going to hear the echo chamber of your own mind. Let me move through the rest of the psalm quickly in the second part of verse 6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All the breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? The psalmist describes this inner dance because while everything I said may be true, let's be honest, your emotions aren't a light switch. Your feelings and your perspective don't automatically change. My wife and I have been in our house for nine years. We moved, after about three years, we moved our uh, silverware drawer from one side of the kitchen to the other. Do you know it took me five years to figure that out? I was so used to going to that one spot, I would always, oh, there's towels there now. Okay, I've got to go over here. If you have been preaching a certain way to yourself for a long time, don't think that that channel just changes course in an instant. 
You will have to grab hold of some of these truths. And this, this, this dance, this up and down, the psalm, the psalm captures that perfectly. His, his soul is cast down, and so he goes back and he remembers uh, Jordan and, and Mount Hermon and Mount Mazara, places in Israel. He remembers how God brought salvation and victory in the land of Israel. Whether it's his own story or the story of the patriarchs that he's recalling, doesn't really matter. He knows God has done real stuff. And so this, he's, he's remembering, but, but deep calls to deep. He's sitting there staring at the waterfall, and rather than the, the river of life that we sung about in worship, he sees this water, and it feels like he is right where it crashes into the pool. And it's just like ju- waves of judgment coming down upon him, and, he, and, he, and he's going to go under, and he can't catch his breath. And just as he struggles to gain a little foothold, it seems like another thing crashes down. Your waves crash over me. O Lord, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This, this is almost a picture of its faith struggling to find voice. Ever had something really bad happen, and you cry yourself to sleep, and the next morning you wake up, and there's about two seconds where you forgot it happened, and you tell yourself, oh, it was a dream. I'm going to wake up to the life that I remember. And then you realize that's sort of what he's describing. At night, your prayer is still with me. It's, it's, it's still a song that struggles. But when he wakes up, I say to my God in verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning all day? Why, why didn't you rescue me? Why didn't angels come racing in? Why didn't lightning bolts fall and smite the Babylonians as they were around my city? Why? 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 As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where's your God? This Hebrew is half afraid that they might be right. Because that's what it feels like. His heart feels like a traitor because it's starting to listen. It's starting to, he's starting to listen to himself rather than preach to himself. He's in exile. His home is destroyed. The question remains, why have you forgotten me, God? Why does this oppression continue? What, why, why am I forced to mourn this way? It feels like God has abandoned him. It's like a wound. In, it's like a, a disease in his bones. He doesn't feel right inside it. He doesn't feel strong inside. It feels like it's just going to shatter under the weight that he needs it to bear. When stuff happens, when horrifying stuff happens, it is not a shock that we go through this. It is not a shock that our emotions rage and race, that, that fear rises up. I, it, at the church where I pastor, here's the definition of faith that we've settled on. Faith is confidence that proves itself in action. Faith is not emotional certainty. Sometimes in situations like this, pain is real and questions are real. And it's not that we don't have them or have to ignore them. There was a woman when uh, my wife and I lived in Milwaukee. Um, she was a, a church secretary and one of her coworkers, just an awesome, gracious woman. But she was sick. I come in to visit Tammy at the office, and, and, and she is sick. I mean, just like death chewing on a cracker. She's oozing out of every head hole she has, and she looks miserable. And I, I go, oh, sweetie, are you Okay. And she said, I'm healed. (laughs) 
And I said, you don't have to lie to prove to God that you trust him. You should probably go take a nap. Our, our emotions are going to respond to our circumstances, and we don't have to ignore what's genuinely going on around us to stand in faith, because faith is confidence that proves itself in action. And you want to see the action the psalmist took after, he's, after he hears the recrimination of his enemies, after he, he examines the roller coaster of his own soul. He looks at his situation. He thinks about his past. He looks to a bleak and uncertain future. And all of this is raging inside, and he doesn't ignore it. But this is faith, and this is what he does. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For again, I will praise him, my salvation and my God. He preaches to himself. He reminds himself that his circumstances did not spin the universe into existence. His emotions are not the largest thing in creation. That there is a God who creates and saves and has made promises. And he will remember and stand and remind himself of that. Because the fog of his, of his situation, his feelings, his fears, and his pains, that is all very real. But there's something bigger that stands beyond. He preaches to himself. That is the faith that is confidence proved in action. That is, that is reaching deep down and, and declaring against odds and against, against your feelings what you know to be true. I mentioned, I didn't know it was communion this week, but I'm always moved. Um, Jesus, when he was on the earth, only gave two specific commands regarding the worship that we're to engage in together. One is baptism and the other is communion. And what he says with communion, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Which to me says that one of the chief dangers we face as people is forgetting what he has done for us. Somehow letting what has happened last week or today or may happen in the future become a larger reality in our heart and soul than what Christ did in his life and death and resurrection. And that I am absolutely capable of forgetting that. And in the forgetting, I will start to preach a pretty bad sermon to myself. And I need to remember, declare, and preach what is absolutely true. A couple of practical and overlapping points as we wrap toward conclusion. The first is that having good theology isn't enough. You will have to preach to yourself. Truth is critical. You don't get anywhere without truth. And I'm a theology geek. I love theology and I love trying to understand stuff. But the reality is you can answer every, every Bible question on Jeopardy, but if it, doesn't, if it isn't something that you declare in a way that it guides your life, it doesn't do you any good. Truth that isn't actionable is trivia. And so you have to take what is true and declare it to yourself. When, again, when we were in Baldwin, we helped organize a Convoy of Hope um, event. And, and one of the things we did is we opened it up to people in the community that wanted to help us. It was a great day. And so this couple, they, they contacted me and said, hey, we, we, we saw your flyer. We'd like to ask some questions. So I invited them to, to my office and we're chatting. And a lovely couple, they were really interested in helping. And, and, and just as in conclusion, I said, I don't know if you guys... I have a place where you worship, but you're always welcome to come and, uh, and worship with us if you don't have a church home. And the gentleman said, well, I was, I was raised Church of Christ. Now, if you're not aware, Church of Christ, two notable things about Church of Christ, they don't use instruments for their singing, and they have communion every week. And so 
It had already been determined that, that he uh, wasn't attending any church. I'm a Church of Christ background, so let me ask you this. How many times do you take communion? Once a month. Oh, no, no. Supposed to take it every week. Fair enough. When was the last time you took communion? Years. Listen, I'm happy to debate this, but you know, why don't you come and worship? And we'll, we'll have communion in, in two weeks, and then we can have coffee afterwards and talk about it. They didn't take me up on it. But he had this idea in his head that he believed to be true, but it had no purchase in his life. It had no influence on what, how he lived or what he did. And so good theology isn't enough. Sometimes we can obsess over if I just understood, if I just had answers to X, Y, or Z, if I just had some secret spiritual key that could transform everything about this. Ultimately, you're going to have to preach what you already know. That God, that he created, he sustains, he came, he offered himself, and he offers to you. And as a Christian, you've accepted all of that. And so you'd better preach it. In his book, Spiritual Disciplines, Lloyd-Jones again, uh, pardon the extended quote, but he says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on and remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. This is Lloyd-Jones saying, truth is important and you better declare that to yourself. It better be what you preach and what you act on. You better remember who God is and what he has done, what you have trusted him for and how he has been faithful in the past. Even if you have to go all the way back to Calvary and say, this is who God is and this is where I stand. And so I'll defy my own feelings and I'll defy the devil and I'll defy the naysayers who ask, where is your God? And I'll defy the circumstances and I'll defy an uncertain future and I will say, here I stand. I stand because he has given me strength to stand. I'm his. If in searching for answers you forget truth and if in finding truth you forget that it has to be acted on, you're going to get some pretty bad source material in your head and it's just going to be an echo chamber of horror instead of preaching in a way that lets you stand. The second point is preaching to ourselves means that we, we look to God. To simply allow your feelings and your circumstances to determine everything you think and feel and do is ultimately self-centered. Now, don't get me wrong. It's really easy to do. I've done it. We've all done it. Katie did it when she was staring at her finger because it was bleeding. But at a certain point, if in my focus on this, I forget to look to God, I forget that I'm not going to have anything good to preach. It's all going to be reaction. It's all going to be 
it's all going to be miserable because I'm confused and I'm hurt and I, and I don't know what to do. And, and unless we can, and, and God, he not only calls us to, but he promises to strengthen us to, to look beyond what's happening right here, what's happening here, what's rolling around in here, to look beyond that and to cast the eyes of our heart upward and to see him. And then we can say, I can stand. There's hope in life. In the book of James, in the, in the passage that nobody likes, but we all need, James verses uh, uh, two, and four, 2 through 4 of chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, meet various trial, or when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't like trials. And, and I don't pretend to be wise enough to understand how God's sovereignty and my choices and agency combine to create the world that we're in. I, I am nowhere near that smart. But what Scripture tells me is that God can use every circumstance for His glory and my good. And if I'm not looking at Him, then I'm looking at the circumstance and I'm forgetting that there's something greater that can happen and there's something greater beyond. I, I, uh, I blew my knee out where I teach, actually, at North Point. Um, a student helped pop it back into place, which he passed. I made sure he passed that class. But um, I blew my knee out, and, and I had to have ACL and MPFL reconstruction, and, and my kneecap was so wobbly I couldn't walk for a couple months before surgery, and there was recovery after surgery. And now I'm, I'm near the end of physical therapy. And physical therapy stinks. I don't like it. They make me do things to, that hurt. But I did discover in the months of, of injury and recovery, I kind of like walking. It's a nice thing. And, and if I'm going to walk, I'm going to have to do the therapy. And so when I'm doing therapy, I have two choices. I can focus on how much I don't like it, or I can focus on what comes beyond it. Those are really the only two options. And what's weird is that I'll actually embrace the discomfort if I have the goal clear enough in my mind. But if all I look at is the discomfort, I have lots of really legitimate excuses as to why I shouldn't and don't want to do what I need to do. And so when you preach to yourself, you have to pull your eyes off of yourself and look to God. You will have to remember who he is and what he's done and the promises that he's made. And you will have to declare that sometimes without feeling, but always with faith, saying, this is where I'm standing, God. I don't see it, but I'm going to do it. Because, because I've trusted you, and you have shown yourself to be faithful. And I'm feeling what I'm feeling right now in my circumstance, but this isn't the end, and this isn't everything. You are. And so we have to, we have to look to God as, as, we, as we learn to preach to ourselves. The third point, preaching to ourselves means that we do have to address ourselves. You don't want to be the focus, but you do have to look at yourself. And here's, here's the truth of it. If you are committed to bringing the light of the gospel to every dark, dank, and dingy corner of your heart, you will find things that are not nice or pleasant or lovely. And I don't know about you, I like to take dark, dank, and dingy things and shove them away where I don't see them. But if you're committed to bring the light of the gospel to every part of your heart, you're going to see things about yourself that you wish weren't true. And this is what differentiates preaching to yourself from 
Oprah-fueled happy thoughts. I, I don't want you to stare into the mirror and I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me like the old Stuart Smalley character from years ago. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to be a cheerleader for yourself, but a preacher to yourself. And part of that means that you're going to have to see, because those circumstances that come into your life, you know, we, we try to organize and structure our lives to be a certain way, and then something comes in and disrupts it, and then you see what's really here. And that's true of little things, and it's true of big things. And when those things come to the surface, they need to be recognized and acknowledged, but they don't need to overwhelm, because God knew that they were there before you trusted him before you crossed the line and started following him. He knew that was there. It was a secret to you. He knew it was there. And so now that it has come to light, it is the invitation of God, like in those trials that James talks about. Here, here's the therapy that we get to do. Here's the place where we get to bring strength. Here's the, here's the, the, the corner of your attitude or your, your, your guilt or your relationships where we get to apply truth and bring wholeness and soundness. I don't like the process. I don't like the recognition, but God knew it was there and he invites us in and by his spirit, he makes things whole. If he could raise Christ from the dead, he can straighten me out. It's the same spirit that does the work. And, and so when we find ourselves in those situations, when you have to preach to yourself, don't, please don't think that this is just ignoring anything that's unpleasant. Sometimes it means looking at something that's pretty ugly. But there was an old Puritan writer whose name escapes me who says something, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but he said, it is the truly converted that rejoice at the discovery of a new sin because it shows a new level to which Christ's grace has already gone. If Jesus, is, if Jesus can forgive you of the stuff you knew was there, he can forgive you the stuff that you didn't know was there. If he can change you from the person that you used to be, he can continue to change you into the person he died to make you. But you have to look at yourself and preach to yourself. Look at your, address yourself, look to God, stand on truth. And ultimately, the final point, preaching to ourselves means that we, we set our hope in the gospel. It puts our hope in God's power to bring life, not in my ability to do all the right things. It, it, it makes me look to him and trust in the work that only he can accomplish rather than, than the strength that I can muster. If you continue this afternoon, if you go and look at Psalm 43, it is where the, it's where the Hebrew's heart starts to turn. He still says, why are you cast down, O my soul? But he begins to declare and to expect God's saving vindication. He begins to shift from his personal and, and present pain to the hope that God has legitimately told him he can have. It's a really cool dynamic as you read these two psalms together. If, if Christ arose from the dead, if what we celebrate in communion is a reflection of reality, how weird is it that Jesus says, and in, in, uh, Paul quotes him in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare my death until I return. Well, dead people don't come back unless they're alive. I mean, it's such a weird thing that Jesus takes death and from it brings life and promises eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the power of, the, that's the power of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's ultimately what we have to preach to ourselves. The psalmist in an Old Testament kind of way had to say, all right, God, 
my past is gone, my plans are in ruins, and I don't know what the future holds. But you're the one who's at work, and so I'm going to put my trust in you. Where else am I going to put my hope? Am I going to put it in my leaders who failed me? Am I going to put it in myself who can't control this? Am I going to put it in, in, in politics or, 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 or national identity or anything else? It's all gone or going. And so, Lord, I'm going to hope in you. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Friends, I love this psalm because we all go through things where God feels distant. I remember when he felt real. I remember when I had dreams, but now it's, I don't know, I don't know. And you're going to preach to yourself. All of us are our favorite preacher, even if it's just by the amount of preaching that we do to ourselves. Preach good sermons. Look to God and take the truth of, of what you have already trusted by becoming a Christian. And if you haven't trusted him, I'm here to tell you that your circumstances are not the biggest thing in the universe. That God and what he has declared is. And he has said he will bring forgiveness and newness of life. Remember what is true. Remember to, to, to put your, your focus on God. Remember to look at yourself honestly and remember that the gospel is what we stand on. And, and this is the preacher point. Examine your life and try to figure like that woman from our church up, up north, where are you getting your source materials? Preachers do have to study. There's not enough going on in my own head to be interesting to anybody for very long. Talk to my wife. We just we celebrated our 20th anniversary this week, so she knows I'm all out of anything interesting to say. And so preachers have to study. As a preacher, you are studying. You have source material for the sermons you prepare. And it's either your own feelings or the voices of the people around you. It's either your expectations or your past guilt. It's either fear or, or perceived weakness or you're finding some truth. That's why it's important to come and worship with your brothers and sisters. To sing songs you didn't pick and to hear a sermon that you didn't prepare so that the Holy Spirit who promised to be here when we gather in Jesus' name can minister to your heart and remind you of what's true. This is why it's really important to open your Bibles and to start reading and to spend time in prayer and to find good Christian friends, maybe even some who can hold you accountable or can offer prayer and wisdom. A lot of times when we find ourselves in pain, we really want to isolate ourselves. But then, where are you going to get the sermon you need to preach? At that point, you just start talking to yourself rather than preaching to yourself. And so if you're here this morning and God feels distant and his promises seem shaky and, and there's even questions in your emotions in your heart, where is my God? I can say because Scripture tells us because I've experienced it, he's there. Call out to him, he'll respond. And then preach to yourself. Remind yourself of who is the most central in the universe and ultimately what's true. Let's pray and I'll turn it over to Pastor Rick. Lord, I thank you for loving us and I thank you for speaking to us. God, you're not a, a, a God who is removed and distant. In Christ, you entered this world you felt the kind of pain that we experience. And yet you show us love and life and truth. 
So Holy Spirit, for any who are here today who have not yet trusted you, I pray that you would call to them beyond my ability to articulate. And Lord, for any of your children who are here, where the sermon in their head has been something that beats them down rather than lets them stand, Holy Spirit, could you come and minister even now? Could you bring strength and hope not based on circumstance or even their own abilities, but based on you, your presence, and your promise. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. It's the call of Scripture, Lord. Give us the strength to do exactly that. In Jesus' name, amen.